and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is JG McQuarrie, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Kev Kozer. Say hi, Kev. Hi. How's this week been for you? Well, I've been feeling great, which is means I get to avoid a hospital trip, and given the hospital we encounter in this story, I think that's a good thing. Well, that definitely seems like a good thing indeed. This week, we are covering the harvest, so that means we are dealing with the Seventh Doctor and Ace, and we're also dealing with the introduction of new companion, Hex. Kev, do you want to give us a quick summary of this one? Sure. The harvest opens on Hex, who is a nurse at St. Grant's Hospital, and there are suspicious going-ons, and Ace and the Doctor are have already sort of supplanted themselves there. Hex is sort of caught up in what they're investigating, which turns out to be Cybermen trying to convert themselves into human flesh while also giving the technology to the European Union to create Cybermen astronauts. That part's a little murkier. But basically it ends with the Cybermen running amok, killing people until the Doctor, Ace, and Hex all stop them. And at the end, Hex asks the Doctor and Ace if he can travel with them. Yeah, that's a very good summary, I think. So, um, I think this is a strange story in a way, because I think parts of it are very good, and there are parts of it which are just a bit sort of eye-rolling, and there's not an awful lot of consistency between the two. I think one of the weird things about this one is that it deserves real credit for trying to find a new angle on the Cybermen, and we've had so many Cybermen stories at this point, even just by Big Finisher standards, we've had quite a few, if you want to include the, the Cyberman range. And so it's quite difficult to find a new angle on them. And I quite admire the fact that they've, they've been able to do this. And, and this idea of them sort of reverse engineering themselves from Cybermen back to human is, I think that's quite a compelling idea. And I think Dan Abnett's done an interesting thing by trying to drag that sort of out. I'm not sure that every aspect of it lands, but I'm really curious to hear what you think of that. I definitely admire the attempt more than the execution. I think, especially all the early scenes with Subject 1, especially thanks to William Boyd's performance, work really well. I think then it sort of falls apart when you have to go through a big old rigmarole of Cyberman exposition, and it ends with them being very much the generic Doctor Who bad guy. But I do think the idea of Cybermen trying to unconvert themselves is a great concept that some mileage has gotten out of before it all just sort of collapses. Yeah, I, I think that's basically exactly what I think as well. And I mean, it's basically a reverse spare parts. And that's, yeah, that's, I just wish, I wish a little bit more had been done with it because it's such a shame that, that rather than sort of having this sort of really sort of sincere attempt to find uh, redemption or whatever you want to call it in the Cybermen, they, they kind of, everything just sort of collapses back to kind of, well, they're only doing it because it's it's nothing more than a tactical advantage. And that just seems like, it seems like such a waste of the concept because the idea that there might genuinely be Cybermen out there who have understood the mistake that they've made and therefore are trying to do something about it, that's that's so interesting. And I guess it's vaguely recalls um, evil of the Daleks with like the Dalek factor and the human factor. Um, I don't think that's really leaned into particularly, but it's the same idea. It's, it's taking something of humanity and using that to try and gain some kind of tactical advantage. It's always funny when the Cybermen sort of, you know, it happens quite a few times during this play, but when they say, you know, well, we're slaves to logic and, you know, we have to escape our completely logical minds. Has anybody ever looked at a cyber plan and gone, oh yeah, that's logical. That, that makes perfect sense. Never. And and this has exactly the same problem. It's like, 
yeah, you've got some vaguely nebulous idea that this might somehow break a logical impasse that you don't really seem to suffer from in the first place. Yeah, that's also a, a bit of a weakness here. It's just, yeah, it's so frustrating that there doesn't really seem to be a good plan or hook to what, to the whole unconversion aspect. Like, they're faints at the sort of great idea of wanting to become human again, to feel things again. But then, yeah, it all just comes down to, oh, this is a logical plan, and that sort of takes the wind out of the sails in a big way. Which, again, is really unfortunate, because I want to sort of circle back. The subject one in those first two episodes, when you don't really know if it's a Cyberman, I don't know if either of us walked in the story not knowing Cyberman, and I know I certainly did. Yeah, I, I did as well. Yeah, and to the Harvest credit, this isn't like the usual Master or Dalek or Cyberman story where their faces are plastered all over the cover and mention the publisher summary and you get credit from Nicholas Briggs or Jeffrey Beavers in the cast. So it doesn't feel like a complete, like, stupid moment <laughs> to have the Cybermen twist at the end of episode two. And it does play the cards close to the chest in an intelligent way. And so I, I, like, I can't really fault the story for the fact that we're listening to it uh, almost 15 years later and we just know it's a Cyberman story because we can look on Doctor Who Wiki and see it's a Cyberman story. That said, it's, it's still a little frustrating to get to the Cyberman after so long of a build-up, but I think that also helps the fact that the Subject 1 scenes are so different. And even if you know it's a Cyberman story going into it, they, you don't really have a full scope of what's happening until much later on in the story. And revisiting it having listened to this once before a few years ago like even i was sort of thrown off like how is this related to the cybermen what is exactly going on with this character and i found that mystery really compelling for that first half yeah i did as well and i think that they play those early scenes very fairly so when we have subject one waking up and sort of saying that he's experiencing you know these views for the first time or he's seeing the way that the city looks through sort of new eyes or whatever. It's one of those things that once you know it's a Cyberman, you can go back and listen to them and go, oh, right, yeah, so it is nicely set up. But it can be the way that it's sort of portrayed. It can be sort of interpreted sort of philosophically. Oh, well, I've never seen the city look like this before. And, you know, you can imagine like a sunset is, is going down behind the skyline or, or, you know, there's rain in the window and it's all kind of very pretty or whatever. And that's good. I think that's very solid writing. And I think the script plays fair with the fact that the writing is able to sort of encompass that kind of perspective whilst also then being able to kind of retcon it into actually being Cyberman without that sort of falling apart. So I think there's definitely some strong writing there. And I think the most compelling aspect of the sort of cyber story is those first sort of two, maybe two and a half episodes where subject one is kind of being explored as a character rather than just, all right, here's the returning bad guys this week. And, you know, that's, again, it's a shame that it sort of collapses back into that kind of typical Cyberman runaround at the back end of the story. But that, that early stuff is, yeah, there's some really good material there. It's a very sort of interesting story out this idea of a thing sort of discovering new humanity and emotions, even if you're not totally sure what that thing is at first. And I think uh, it does a great job sort of separating the halves of the investigation with the Doctor Ace and Hex and this sort of story of Subject 1. And it's only when they dovetail that things fall apart, which is sort of frustrating. But 
I mean, yeah, that's the mystery. I think the story is well built because, like I said, even if you know going in, Cybermen are involved. And if, if you don't have the details, also stuff with like Polk, like it's you don't you can't picture it exactly, and that's a sort of asset of the audio. Because if you could just see, oh, it's a Cyberman chasing them, it's sort of self-evident. But because it's audio, uh, you have Hex not being able to describe it and Ace not wanting to describe it. And so you're sort of left in this sort of lurch that is very nice and sort of creepy. Well, and I think that cliffhanger to episode two is really effective when Ace kind of screams, Doctor, Doctor, it's Cybermen. And again, because the story has played fair up to that point, when she gets that reveal, I think it really lands. Um, You know, a lot of the, again, particularly the first sort of two episodes, there's a really strong kind of new adventures vibe running through this. So Ace is still doing her sort of McShane thing. And, you know, the, the fact that the Doctor and Ace are already investigating the second the play is kicked off and they've already... You know, Ace has already been inveigled into the, the hospital and she's got her backstory and her idea, all that kind of stuff. And the fact that the Doctor isn't really in episode one at all, he gets like three lines or something. All that feels very new adventures. And, you know, the the way that that big reveal comes, that build up to the end of uh, the second episode, it uses the weight of that, I think, to be able to sort of deliver on it fairly. So everything up to that point has been sort of relatively calculated and, you know, like up to Ace's flirting with Hex and, and the way that they're kind of exploring everything. It's all very calculated. So when you get that big punch right in the middle of the story, when everything falls apart and there's this sudden desperate realization of what it is that they're facing up against, I think it's really effective. I think it's a, a really powerful cliffhanger, by far and away the best that this uh, story has to offer, I think. And, and, I think it uses the sort of expectations of that kind of new adventures kind of setup, which even if you haven't read the new adventures, like if you've, I mean, we've covered, you know, uh, the Rapture and we've covered Colditz and we've done Shadow of the Scourge. So we're kind of familiar with that genre within Big Finish, even if you haven't kind of read the books. And I think it uses that as a very effective way of sort of punching into that second cliffhanger really, really effectively. Oh, for sure. I just want to take a quick note. I think this is going to be the last time Dr. Story where Ace tries to go by McShane. Thank like goodness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I don't want to be too down on the idea of like a character trying to have a, like a different name for themselves, but it's just never clicks, and they realize it and reverse it very quickly, which is, like, thankful. But it is a sort of awkward bridge area where big characters are trying to make it more new adventure and the interviews Hex, and then almost right after introduce Hex, they realize we should make the Seventh Doctor her own thing and not so new adventure-y. And, I mean, that's, you know, for better or worse, but it does make Seventh Doctor have sort of tinge to it. So the Harvest is a sort of weird bridge story because of that. Yeah, it is a weird bridge. And I think one of the problems is, that I, I, for example, when we did Shadow of the Scourge, I... I it's not a perfect story by any stretch of the imagination, but it's still a thoroughly enjoyable one and there's lots to recommend it. So I think being able to explore that sort of new adventures part of the Seventh Doctor is an intrinsically worthwhile thing for Big Finish to do. I I think it's a shame that they haven't done a bit more of it, but I think they need a cleaner dividing line between, okay, this is going to be the sort of Seventh Doctor new adventures kind of storyline, and then if they're going to do kind of main range stuff with Ace and then going forward with Hex or, or whatever then that's its own thing. But yeah, this is a sort of weird hybrid, a sort of sort of 
weird mid cybernetic kind of way of doing things, and it doesn't it doesn't quite land. But I, I I sort of appreciate the fact that they're trying to give Ace a character push, even although the fact that fact of the matter is is that the one they try and give her here isn't really the one that sticks. Yeah, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but they do sort of struggle to push Ace's character. But I think the one element that does sort of set the Ace to be finished apart from the ace on TV or the ace in other media, is her relationship with Hex. And so while maybe ace taken in a vacuum doesn't really develop much as a character, unfortunately, uh, the relationship with Hex is like sort of this great sort of sounding board for the character. And we've talked about this before in the companion special, but with ace as the senior member and Hex as sort of the junior, uh, she acts as sort of this great bridge between Hex and the Doctor. So you get sort of the midpoint between someone who's like, all-knowing, especially the Seventh Doctor, is very all-knowing, and someone like Hex, who's a complete newbie to this. Yeah, it's a good way of sort of balancing those things up against each other, and I like the way, even in this story, even before they kind of start to develop a brother-sister relationship together, I like the way that Ace and Hex interact here. I think Sophie Aldred is, is generally given one of her better performances here, and I think she's really buoyed by the fact that she's given material which allows her to portray Ace as being more than just kind of you know, angsty. And I think for all the problems that the character might have going forward in terms of not really developing all that much, I think the way that she's able to work with Hex here is much more interesting than kind of the last couple of sort of, you know, like the Rapture and, and, and Coldest, where she's basically just angsty all the time. And the problem with that reading of Ace is that we've seen it and, you know, we've had it in the audios, we've had it on TV as well. And it's just, that's not really doing anything new with the character, whereas at least here, Ace gets to do something more. As you said, she's kind of that midpoint and she's a senior figure to Hex. And that gives Sophie Aldred the space to be able to do more interesting things with the character. And I think, generally speaking, she does pretty well here. And I like the way that she works with Philip Oliver. This is a much more relaxed Ace than the more angsty Ace we've seen elsewhere. She's sort of very sort of calm and in control. She gets some great like sort of taunts in against people like Garnier across the story. And she doesn't really have a lot of the, I mean, like I said, the angst that can sort of weigh the character down. This is a very different ace from Cold It's or The Rapture, and it's one that feels much more assured, and definitely one I much like sort of prefer to see. Absolutely, and I think the way that uh, Ace is deployed here is, is generally quite skillful. So she's allowed enough kind of autonomy within the story to be able to actually really basically resolve the story when she sort of gets to the office in episode four, and she's able to sort of trigger the safeguard to shut down the cyberhumans. But she's also still, she needs the Doctor to be part of that. And so she still has a, a sort of narrative function within the in the play to be able to fulfill. But, I mean, if, if Ace is sort of well used here, uh, I think Hex gets a terrific kind of start in this story. He's, he's given a, a lot to kind of cope with. There's a lot of stuff that's sort of thrown at him. And I think, I mean, as far as I, I'm concerned, Philip Oliver kind of impresses sort of more or less from the first time we hear him and he kind of carries on sort of throughout the play he's got a lot of there's a lot of emotional range that that hex has to sort of deal with here and i think he's great at sort of being able to sort of deliver on that and he's such a he feels like such a natural fit for this kind of environment not just for the sort of stuff that's going on at st garts but just like dealing with ace and and, and having all this stuff thrown at him and he gets that great line i think it's at the start of episode two where the doctor kind of patronizes him and he basically says listen i've been through a lot i am allowed a moment to kind of try and get to grips with this <laughs> and that's great it's so nice to just hear him push back and you can almost sort of see 
like if 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 this was a, a you know a proper TV episode, you can imagine Sylvester McCoy's face sort of just raising his eyebrows and looking very impressed, but still kind of striking the same tone with his voice. And it's a it's a lovely little moment. And Hex gets a lot of really great moments like that throughout this play. So yeah, I, I mean, if the story is a bit flawed here, I think it's a great introduction for Hex all the same. Philip Oliver is yet another sort of big Finnish companion performer who impresses right out of the gate. He instantly feels at home, a lot like India Fisher and Maggie Stables before him. And it's it's just like a very solid, grounded performance, which is what you need, but there's enough personality there that you get a good sense of the character. And it's yeah, he also just feels just natural. Like uh the oh my god recurring bit is I mean, very sort of vital for a key into how the character works. As long as being like a just a cute moment on its own, and like he sells it, like it works really well. Like his sort of disbelief and sort of caught up in sort of everything going around him, but the story definitely takes those pauses to make sure that he wants to actively participate, which is also very important. Like without those sort of pauses of Ace and the Doctor checking up on him and asking if he still wants to go on, it would not be nearly as effective because then he'd just be some guy stuck in the middle of it all, and that's what's different about this character from someone like, say, Tegan, who is someone who's just sort of swept up with the Doctor and doesn't have much of a choice in it when she first started traveling with him. Hex is given multiple choices and always chooses to sort of stay with them. And I think that's a really solid foundation for the character. Well, absolutely. And the fact that he's able to sort of maintain a sort of sense of the human perspective of it all as well, I think really helps to sort of ground the character in a way. I mean, this is one of the most sort of remote and and kind of emotionally distant kind of Seventh Doctor performances I think we ever get. I think it's another one of the reasons that this feels very kind of new adventures. The Doctor seems absolutely kind of uninterested in the big picture in terms of the way that, uh, sorry, in the small picture, in the way that people are suffering or whatever. He's just there. He wants to stop this. And then sort of whatever happens as sort of collateral to that. He doesn't seem particularly in, invested in it. It's a very cold doctor. And having uh, Hex there and, and the sort of warmth that uh, Philip Oliver has been able to bring to that performance, even while still being terrified or still being chased or whatever it is, I think that acts as a very important kind of counterpoint. I mean, Ace is sort of confident and, and a bit plucky and she knows what's going on and she knows how to deal with it, but she doesn't really act as a counterbalance to the doctor's sort of remoteness in this story. So I think it's really uh, crucial that Hex is that sort of extra emotional bandwidth, if you'll excuse the expression, that um, that really allows the, the sort of play to have an extra dimension. Otherwise, I think this would be a very kind of drab piece of work. And, and you know, Philip Oliver is absolutely up to the task. And I, like I mentioned that scene in episode four where they're in the office um, and he's like screaming at the other doctor to explain to him how he can try and save a life and it ought to be kind of a bit hackneyed but but Philip Oliver is so powerful in that moment he really kind of sells the terror that Hex is going through but also you know like his determination to try and get this guy to survive and it sounds sort of describing it like that yeah like it ought to be a little bit of a cliche but he's just he's got the kind of emotional heft and he's a good enough actor to be able to land that moment and, and it, it rather than it being sort of cliche it ends up being you know really kind of powerful moment in the play. That's going to be sort of a continuing sort of theme with Hex's character is Philip Oliver's ability to sort of sell these more dramatic moments because he plays the character so grounded and down to earth in contrast with his two co-stars. It 
really makes him stand out more and have these more like empathetic emotional moments. And Oliver's a great job selling them. For sure, Abnett and future writers of Hex, at least the ones that write him well, uh, pick up on that and use that sort of base humanity in the character really well. And like I said, Oliver does a great job selling that. We talked before about Ace's sort of midpoint between the Doctor and Hex in terms of detachedness. And that's why you really need Hex at this point to sort of ground it. Because if you're going to be writing Ace as this someone who's been traveling with the Doctor for an uh, undisclosed amount of time, but we can assume years, then that means Hex has to be the stand-in for like a normal person, an audience identification figure, which isn't 100% necessary for Doctor Who, as we've seen multiple times. But it really does help. And it really, when used well, it can be very effective. And Hex is a very effective use of that. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, it makes sense that Dan Abnett has a good handle on the character because presumably he's responsible for creating it. But, you know, this is, we're running through a number of big Finnish stories now who have uh, new writers who haven't written for The Range before, who haven't written for Doctor Who before uh, in, in a sort of scripted format. I know um, there's been a, like, a couple of comic book writers and indeed Dan Abnett is a, a comic book writer. But he is someone that I think... Like, I, I think I mentioned this back when we were talking about the axis of insanity, but he's somebody that he's only got a couple more kind of Doctor Who credits to his range as far as Big Finish are concerned. And it feels like a shame that he doesn't have a little bit more because I think he gets the way that this works pretty quick. And he's good at getting a handle on the way that these characters need to be written. There's a lot of potential for melodrama here. And... And we'll talk about sort of episode four a bit later on, I guess, when, which I, I think it's a shame that that episode is, is so weak and the whole thing kind of collapses back in in itself. But sort of like I said, when we were discussing uh, Simon Furman and the Axis of Insanity, I think it's a shame that he hasn't done a little bit more because I think all the right core components are here. But of course, it's his first time out the gate, so they're not all going to be 100% straight off the bat. You know, nobody gets it right 100% off the bat. And so I think it's a shame that he hasn't done a little bit more. As I say, I know he's got like two or three more kind of credits on, on uh, the Doctor Who line for Big Finish, but but nothing that really quite manages to follow through in the work that he does here, I think. And and yeah, that feels like a shame. I, I, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more work for him, but at least for what we have as far as this story is concerned, I think we get a good idea of kind of the way that he's able to deal with characters and the way that he's able to invest Hex with, as we said, you know, all these different sort of facets of him. And there are things that other writers are going to pick up on and run with. And I think that in itself is a good indication of how well he's done in constructing Hex here, because rather than sort of taking those aspects, discarding them and find something else to do with them, other writers have kind of picked up with them, used them as the core components of Hex, and they've been able to write a very, very strong character going forward from this. So... Yeah, I think I think more or less, as, as certainly as far as the character work is concerned here, Dan Abnett does a really good job. And that character work is going to be very necessary because he's going to be showing up in a lot of future stories. So yeah, I'm very glad Hex gets a good intro and a good solid base for him going forward from here on out. Well, and I think one of the things that sort of helps to save this play is the fact that the character work is, is pretty solid because I think there are definitely a lot of flaws elsewhere it was sort of hinted at the sort of episode four and everything collapsing there. But I think the production is a bit weird here as well. Um, the incidental music, for one, is, is really very distracting. And it's got this sort of slightly sort of pseudo-techno kind of thriller kind of electronic stuff going on. It doesn't feel 
of a piece of anything. It's, it's a bit weird, and it doesn't really fit, I don't think. This is, this is quite somber play for the most part. Again, especially sort of reinforced by the Doctor's kind of remove, uh, you know, from what's going on, and, and then having all this kind of, like, really kind of fast action-y kind of, kind of techno music going on, it's not, it doesn't really land, and it's, it, it's a bit damaging to the production, the sound design is fine, but, but the actual incidental music itself is, it, I think it undercuts a lot of the tension, and, like, towards the end, we start getting some of the old Cyberman tubular bell things going on, and that's fine, I guess, that's sort of, evocative of that kind of 80s era sort of Cyberman sort of stories. Um, but I think for the most part, the, the, like a lot of that kind of incidental production isn't very effective. And, and yeah, it is sometimes uh, quite undermining what's going on here. And that, that feels like a bit of a shame. It's definitely a big swing from Big Finish. Uh, music was done by David Darlington. And this is not, he's no stranger to Big Finish. He's done plenty of stories before and will do plenty of stories afterwards some with great music and sound design, so it's not really a knock on him. It's just a very bold choice that doesn't quite <laughs> land. Yeah, I mean, usually Big Finner's scores are very much backgrounded by the story. They don't stand out much, which is why I don't mention them much. But this uh, makes a point of sort of standing out against the action, and unfortunately, like you said, yeah, it doesn't stand out in a good way like, say, the Davros score does. It just sort of is weird and doesn't quite mesh with the tone. I think one of the problems that I have with this play is like, I, I know you're talking about the, the, the tone here in terms of sort of incidental music, but I think there's a very uncertain tone struck by the whole play. And one of the things that I was sort of quite aware of, and I, I'm sort of interested to hear if you think that this is sort of a valid interpretation or not. But uh, I think one of the things I was very aware of here is that they keep talking about sort of the Eurozone and the way that like mm -hmm. these, and there's a real kind of sort of cynicism towards the idea of sort of I think Europe small e or capital E in inverted commas and there's a slight I don't want to say conservatism I think that's maybe a little bit too strong but there's a certain note which is struck by the play which feels weirdly uncomfortable in a Doctor Who setting and it's not it's not really sort of politics from a, like a left-wing or a right-wing perspective but like at one point the doctor literally gets a line complaining about bureaucrats in brussels and that's a really weird line to give to the doctor like even if it had been i don't know like garnier or or, or, or uh, you know farrier or someone like that that were complaining about it or they were you know th that would make sense it's a really weird tone to be struck by by the doctor sort of giving that that sort of line and there's a strange note to the way that there's a real unease about sort of anything sort of well, again political feels like a little bit too strong of a word but you know especially it, it really resonated listening to it this time in a way that it didn't the first time I listened to that and that may well be because we're in the sort of catastrophic omnishambles of Brexit at the moment but it I don't know it, it, it just felt like an odd note and like the way that the hospital is being used which is basically to uh, exploit people where a hospital would normally be something, you know, a safe haven or a refuge. And I don't know, there's, there's an odd tone to this. And I'm, I'm having, as is very clear from this, uh, <laughs> this thing that I'm saying now, I'm having difficulty kind of articulating it. But does, does that make sense to you? Do, you? do you know what I mean? No, I totally know what you mean. There's another line that struck me as odd. Now you mention it, where the doctor says, like, a situation like this that make him feel more like a Luddite. I'm paraphrasing, but that yeah. just seems so 
anti-doctor. I mean, obviously he comes against alien technology a lot, but he also uses alien technology a lot. His ship, his, like, best friend is a piece of alien technology. So, you know, this is not a character that's ever going to become a Luddite. By any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, no, it's... uh, I remember that line as well, and I also think that line is a really odd choice for something to be sort of dropped into a play like this, because, I mean, I think it oughtn't be that the Doctor is necessarily sort of concerned about technology in the sense that he doesn't understand or doesn't want it to be used. But, yeah, the idea that the Doctor, and especially this Doctor, is has a problem, like, with alien technology or whatever, it, it, it's just it's another example of the emphasis being wrong. You would expect the Doctor to have sort of uh, a judgmental attitude towards the way the technology is being deployed or the fact that it's being used for selfish ends or greed or whatever. And there are mentions of that in there. It's not that it's completely absent, but it's just, yeah, it, it feels like a weird tonal note. To go back to sort of the... Uh mentions of the Eurozone, it is weird. (laughs) I mean, the whole setup is just weird. The idea that the European Union would become this more militarized sort of power and be fighting with a space race with uh, all the other countries in, uh, what would it be, under 20 years after the story comes out. I mean, Sci-fi is no stranger to sort of bold over-predictions. We are three years away from the story it's supposed to take place, and none of this is going to be happening. <laughs> we can very safely assume. But like even then, I don't know. I, I don't know if it is unfair to criticize it for that sort of wrong sort of vision of the future that far out, but it does feel like sort of bit off more than it can chew with sort of setting up all of these sort of strange things for this year that don't really also don't really seem to have much impact on the story. It's Yeah, it's very strange to have like the EU as sort of the villainous organization here. And I know it fits in with the Doctor having problems with authority, like as they usually do, but it's just a very weird sort of body to pick as the authority Doctor has a problem with. Yeah, I mean, I get that it's trying to do the whole sort of five minutes into the future thing, but it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a weird choice, and it doesn't feel like it connects to any other part of Doctor Who either, not even really kind of like the New Adventures vibe. And New Adventures often went for kind of like cyberpunk or kind of dystopia, but this isn't far enough out from now, or indeed from when this was written, for that to be kind of like a viable approach. So instead, it's gone for this kind of slightly uncertain approach, and because there's no investment in it, it doesn't quite work you know the story isn't interested in telling stories about how the eu has become the eurozone or how this space race is meant to work between china and europe and america or any of that that's just not what this play is about and it's not interested in it so i think uh, uh, going for a generous interpretation here but i think it's trying to do the kind of robert holmes thing of creating worlds with a few offhand references but um but bless him i mean fred dan abnett is no robert holmes and it doesn't work here there's just too there's either too much detail so we need to spend more time exploring it or there's not enough detail for it just to be kind of like an off-handed thing here or there and as such it lands in this kind of slightly uncomfortable place yeah it's it's a really weird thing to to be there and it also sort of ties into where i think this is a very minor key problem with hex but he never feels like he's from the 2020s. He always feels like he's from 2004. Oh, yeah. And, like, in this story and pretty much every Hex story to come, 
And I, I mean, that's fine, because, like, 2021, I guess, I don't know, you wouldn't change that much as a person compared to, say, 1921, when you're plucking a person out. I mean, we can project society, and someone from uh, 10 years ago isn't that different from someone now. I guess 17 years is the gap between set and written. But, I mean, yeah, it's not going to be that big of an issue, but there is some room to play there that just no one really takes the character up on. Well, and they don't contrast it with the fact that Ace is meant to be from the 1980s either. So there's never really any sense that, you know, like Ace has one perspective because of when she was born and, and Hex is a different one because of when he was born. And there, yeah, there's definitely kind of fertile room within this play for those kind of perspectives to be addressed, but they they never are. And, and yeah, that also seems like a, a slightly wasted opportunity. I mean, I know there's only so much you can do in one play and obviously it's something that would potentially be available to, to writers in the future. But, um, but right here, right now, that's, that's not something that gets uh, played with very much. I'm also sort of slightly move on from, from this. I'm also really interested to hear what you think about the, the bad guys in this play. I don't mean the Cybermen because that's that's pretty straightforward, I think. But um, but the likes of like Farrier and and Garnier and and you know how how do you think they work within the the body of the play as, as characters? I think they're also very straightforward. Uh, Farrier is at least a little interesting in terms of how he sort of reveals to be altruistic in intention and sort of misguided, and that is enough of a hook of a character to be interesting. I mean, because your first, your natural assumption is he's in charge, he's going to be chopping up these bodies and making Cybermen, etc., etc., etc. But he really does have, like, subject one's best interests in heart and a real academic love for him and a real compassion to want him and these other being converted Cybermen to sort of not die. <laughs> he wants a holistic product oath. He reacts with appropriate horror when Hex and Mark are out to be sort of harvested for body parts. And so that does give him a bit of a sort of interesting edge to him that uh, would otherwise be more generic. But yeah, Garnier is just such a tool of a villain. Like, who cares about him? <laughs> he, like, brings about his own demise, and that's pretty much the most interesting thing about him, is that he has that sort of ironic comeuppance at the end. But otherwise, he's just a thug, and that's not very interesting at all. No, he's completely one note, and I think it's such a shame because there's, uh, again, a real sense that you could do something interesting with that character. And because he ends up just being like a one-note villain, he's very easy to kind of just dismiss and forget. And yeah, like Farrah is sort of late in the day, you know, conversion to conscience and, and the fact that he's he's able to see like a moral distinction between using corpses and actively murdering people in order to try and get body parts so that whole murder thing never really quite comes together and again this is all part of where episode four sort of well you know i'm just going to get into it now right episode four is a catastrophe for this play it really everything just falls apart so quickly and it's such a shame because I do think, like as I say, even although there's a lot of flaws, I think a lot of the work building up to episode four is quite strong. And but at episode four, it just all goes wrong. And like the way that we get the yeah, like the ironic comeuppance is just like it feels so 
laid out. We're just ready for it. And like the way that the doctor sort of walks away at the end and we just get the footsteps walking down the corridor with the sound of the, the ECG monitor, like reaching flatline. I guess we're supposed to feel like morally ambiguous about that. And the fact that the doctor is choosing to walk away and leave somebody to sort of suffer and die, but normally we'd expect the doctor to step in and try and do something, even if not to save, then at least to alleviate the pain. But it's all so overblown, and like especially having like the beep as the, uh, you know alongside the footsteps. It's such a cliche, and it's such a. If it had just been the footsteps, it would have been fine. But like having that beep in there as well, it's just it's so corny, and there's just so much that that's true of in episode four. Like for all that, I'm prepared to praise Philip Oliver's performance when he's he's trying to. Um, save uh, Matthias's life in the office in episode four. It's still a hackneyed thing to happen. And of course he can't do it. So he has his first death, uh, you know, sort of hand to hand. And like, there's just there's so many kind of things in there that, that, you know, should be tighter. And it's a shame because it undoes so much of the good work which has been done over the course of the first three episodes. Yeah, it's so overblown. The, the biggest problem I have with episode four is just something disconcerting about Cybermen running around with human weapons. Oh, yeah. That's my big sticking point. That's just... And they hear, like, real... Well, not real, but, like, uh, fully for, like... That suggests conventional uh, weapons. Just really is disconcerting in a way that I don't like. I prefer the laser sounds. Well, I'm just... Like, we're supposed to believe that, like, dozens of people are being massacred, if not yeah. if not more, during those final scenes. And, it, again, it, it just... This isn't a play that can sustain that. There's no sense of moral horror. There's just, like, some machine gun noises being heard off of sort of camera, as it were, off microphone, if you prefer. And, and, and then, you know, but that's okay because, like, Ace and Hex are running to an office and we can stop this. And it just, it, it's, it's just completely disconnected from, from what's going on. And, yeah, it's, it's uncomfortable, but not in a good way. Doctor Who often struggles when it comes to the aliens are murdering a whole bunch of people. It can never quite get the weight of that in a very sort of proportionate way when it starts indulging in sort of mass massacre like this. And I think it usually served best to not sort of disturb the audience by avoiding that. And I mean, it has been done well in a few Doctor Who stories, but yeah, this is in general fear is very sort of dark for the sort of show to go into. And it's not dark in a fun way. It's just kind of a bummer. <laughs> And, yeah, it doesn't really give any weight to it, which is the problem. Like, it's occasionally to be a bummer if it's a well-executed bummer, if there's proper sort of weight and emotion behind it. But just sort of tossed off like this, it's just leaves a bad taste in the mouth. Well, like, the one era of Doctor Who that could maybe get away with trying to deal with this kind of massacre is, like, maybe early Colin Baker. And, but Sylvester McCoy's era just can't... Even, like, New Adventure Sylvester McCoy era can't really handle the weight of that. And generally speaking, I, I do mean generally, it's not always true, but generally speaking, it's better for this kind of play to go for like the, the horror being small writ large. So if something happens to a character that we care about, somebody that we actually have some affection for or investment in, and they die, and that acts as a kind of synodosh of, of like the bigger picture of, of more people being killed, that works, that can land. But that's not what we have here. So, yeah, just like these endless kind of like machine gun noises. And we're just expected to believe that like dozens of people are, are being killed or whatever. And it's not 
it's not even the fact that they're being killed. It's the fact that the play never does anything to address that. It's like once, as soon as the cyber threat is uh, over, the Doctor and S leave. Hexagon catches up with them, joins the TARDIS crew, and we get the dematerialization noise, and you know, cut to credits. That's it. There's never anything done to address the horror of this. The Doctor doesn't get a speech about how how you know arrogance can lead to such slaughter, or how you know anything. It's just it's just ignored, and that's. That's, I think, where the critical failing is. It's just ignoring the implications of what's supposed to be going on here. I definitely think ignoring that, it really does hurt the story because it just makes it way too pat. Like you said, the whole Doctor walking from the dying subject one thing is just way too pat and so, like, handed, like, sort of gift-wrapped to be a big moment instead of coming across sort of naturally at all. And that yeah, I think that's the sort of big failure of that last episode is it really does just sort of let the story just sort of end in a very dramatic way, but not necessarily a logical or natural way. Just, all right, here's the ten, let's just throw a bunch of drama into here and then we're just going to walk away from it. Well, what's frustrating about it is, is I think it's something that the play actually manages earlier on. So when Hex is dealing with the fact that it's his birthday, one of his friends has been brought into accident emergency and then subsequently dies, I think the play is able to land it at that point because we get through Hex a sense that something has actually happened and that the event that's happened has actually had some kind of emotional impact. It's not just something which has happened because it's plot convenient and it's not just something that's ignored because it's in the way. There's a real sense that Hex's reaction to this actually drives some of what happens to him throughout the rest of the play. So it's not that Devin Abnett can't do this. I think he clearly demonstrates that he can. But I think he gets kind of, I think he runs away with himself and just gets caught up in the idea of like, you know, like we even have it Cybermen with like East End gangster accents at one point, which is just, yeah, it's just laughable at that point. You know, apart from the fact that when you get those cyber voices, it sounds really weird when it's not being done by David Banks. But even apart from that, like Polk and that, we don't need an East End gangster Cyberman. That, this is not the play to try and land that kind of material. Yeah, this might be the only big finish story where Nicholas Briggs doesn't voice any Cybermen. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, either you or the listeners, but it does, it's something at least. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely something. Um, I want to say maybe, like, I, mean, I realize this is extremely recently, but I want to say maybe the Hour of the Cybermen, because that's, uh, that's uh, one that I know that David Banks is back for, and I don't think that Nicholas Briggs does any voices in that, and that's, I mean, that was only released July this year, so only a few months back. I'm not 100% certain, but I, I think that's the case. Uh, other than that, I'm, I'm pretty much certain that you're right. And you do kind of miss having somebody there who can do the voices. But more, but more than that, like even if you are going to have somebody that's doing the voices, for goodness sake, don't have them do it in a cockney accent. Yeah, it's you really miss the sort of traditional Cyberman voice. And I know you're going for something different. I wouldn't want Subject 1 to have the Nicholas Briggs voice, otherwise that would just be a dead giveaway. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, as far as the cyber sort of grunts, for lack of a better word, I mean, to n not have the sort of traditional voice, it really does almost divorce the story from the Cybermen in a weird way. And it's almost like they've changed so much that it doesn't really feel like a typical Cyberman story. 
it's good as you mentioned before because they're trying something new but also almost feels too detached if you really want a good Cyberman experience, I guess I'm trying to say. Well, and the fact that they have Ace react with such shock, again, at that season two cliffhanger, when she goes, it's Cyberman. It's like, it's drawing a direct line of comparison between this play and the kind of 1980s Cyberman story. So it's not unreasonable to expect at least a little bit of a voice like that. It's, and, and, you know, that's fine. Just like we had the Mondasian Cybermen in Spare Parts. It makes sense because you're talking about the beginnings of the Cybermen, so you use their early voices. Here, you have, like, a late 80s Cyberman, you have Sylvester McCoy, it's that period. So it makes sense to have those kind of big, booming, excellent kind of voices going on. That's fine. And it's the fact that they sort of suggest them, but then kind of blow it a little bit. It's, again, it's another weird miscalculation, and it's one of the things that stops the play from being sort of really... I don't want to say you can't take it seriously, but it's another little chink in the armor. It's another sort of way that the play doesn't quite work. And because there are so many little chinks here, there's so many chips that can be sort of hacked away at, it means that the the details start to matter. So like in abstract, the fact that they don't quite get the Cyberman voices right doesn't really matter. But when you start lining it up against all the other mistakes which are being made in that last episode, it starts to count for something more. And I think that's a shame because we talked at the beginning of this sort of recording, uh, how it does like, very interesting things and very unique things with the Cybermen, and to have it collapse in this fourth episode is a little disappointing. But overall, like I do think it's a good introduction to Hex, which is what it has to do first and foremost, and I'm glad we have those aspects of it. Yeah, I agree. I think the most important thing that this play had to learn was getting Hex introduced and making him a character that you actually want to listen to going forward and if the cyberman stuff doesn't land then then at least that does and it, yeah you're you're completely correct that's the most important thing here that sounds like a great button to our discussion we have no letters to read this week but if you want to email us please do at talking who to you at gmail.com you can also find us on twitter at talking who to you you can find myself on twitter at kev Kozer, that is k-e-v-k-o-e-s-e-r you can find more of JG's writings at www.jgmacquarie.scott. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to us on whatever podcast you're using to listen. It helps other people find the podcast. Wow, thank you very much. Next week, we shall be returning to the world of the Sixth Doctor and Evelyn as we venture north of the border and back in time to explore some unexplained going on in what is currently my home city of Edinburgh. And we have a guest next week as well. So we're going to have a new guest, and that is going to be Abby Denton. So we're very much looking forward to her joining our discussion. So what are the Doctor and Evelyn going to uncover? How will their relationship be affected after the events of Arrangements for War? Will the Scottish accents be any more convincing than the Highlanders? Well, we hope you're going to join us to find out. But until then, keep talking. (laughs) 